Personal records compromised in the Scripps hack. There's a lot of value in stealing health records. I don't know that all of these organizations have properly accounted for the risks. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Super sites are closing and there's a new approach to vaccinations. It seems like a lot of our health systems are really quite focused on trying to deliver as many vaccines as possible within the normal uh, confines of, of doctor's offices. How changing the inspection system could gut nursing home oversight. And five local songs on our arts editor's list this month. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Scripps Health confirmed in an email nearly 150,000 patients, staff, and physicians had their personal information compromised during their ongoing ransomware attack. And of those, Scripps says a small number, including Social Security and driver's license numbers, the sheer scale of the incident, and the number of those potentially affected by it are raising questions of how best to safeguard against similar attacks in the future. Joining me is Mark Heckman, a computer science professor and cybersecurity expert at the University of San Diego. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. So what are the immediate concerns about how hackers can exploit this information? Blackmail is a possibility. If people have had a, a, some medical treatment that is sensitive, that they don't want the world generally to know, they could be potentially blackmailed. Also, identity theft, the amount of personally identifiable information in a health record is considerable. And we have lots of examples of people whose health records were stolen, who, whose identity was then stolen. And the, uh, the, the thieves were able to open up accounts or get medical care in the name of another person, run up quite large medical bills that were then presented to the real person who said, I don't know anything about these bills. It can take years to try to remove these debts from your uh, credit history. For those affected, what are some of the best steps to take to ensure the safety of their personal information? Well, there, there's two problems here. One is trying to protect your personal information, and the other is to try to mitigate the problems after the information has already been stolen. And for many of us, our information has already been stolen. We've had so many examples in past years, not just health records, but financial information, the Experian hack of a few years ago. So to protect our information, it's, it's, it's kind of late in the day to do that. What we have to do now is try to pick up the pieces and try to prevent the damage from getting worse. For example, doing a credit freeze or at least requesting a copy of your credit history periodically to check if people are using your credit history or using your information to open up accounts 
or to obtain services in your name that you could potentially be held liable for the debts. What are some best practices for organizations that could be targeted by hackers? There's a a large body of security best practices or or cyber hygiene. And uh, organizations like Scripps that are uh, medical providers are subject to regulations under the HIPAA Act. So there is a, a set of rules, security and privacy rules that they're supposed to follow, and they could be subject to large fines if, if it's found that they failed to follow those best practices. Uh, but what we're finding in a lot of the most recent ransomware attacks, for example, the one on Colonial Pipeline, is that many companies are not following these best practices, are not following the basics of, of cyber hygiene. And, and these are companies that have very valuable information. The, the value of a, of a health record is probably about $1,000 each on the, on the market on the the black market. So there's a lot of value in stealing health records. And uh, I don't know that all of these organizations have properly accounted for the risks that they're facing. You know, we've seen a number of attacks in the weeks since the Scripps hack happened. What are the lessons for individuals for sharing personal information with these large institutions that may be vulnerable to the hacks? There's not a lot we can do if you're dealing with a large organization that requires your personal information, like your social security number, you really have very little recourse in terms of uh, providing it. Now, I mean, there may be alternatives. You may be able to provide an alternative number. It creates problems though, because most of these processes are not set up to account for alternate numbers. They're just, the assumption is made. It's built into the process that it's going to be your driver's license number or your social security number. And if you don't do that, if you diverge from this standard practice, even if it's allowed, it may gum up the works. And so you may be making your life more difficult in some way. For places where it's optional to provide information, for example, you don't have to tell Facebook your actual birthday. So whenever possible, whenever it's not required, don't give up this personal information. And then you reduce the possibility of it being stolen from yet one more database. You know, is the scale of this particular hack typical of these kinds of attacks? Oh, absolutely. A large organization like Scripps handles the records for what hundreds of thousands of patients. If it's if it's found in one place, you found it for just about everybody in that place. And then the attackers can exfiltrate that data. They can steal that data, make a copy of it. And then once it's in their hands, it's it's too late to get it back. You mentioned earlier that having these records stolen and not having enough resources allocated to safeguard them could be a HIPAA violation. Do you have any sense of how much uh, these organizations like Scripps, for example, get fined for these incidents? I don't remember what the current level of fine is. It's somewhere between $500 and $1,000 per record. So potentially organizations have faced fines in the millions of dollars for losing patient records. I don't know exactly the nature of all of the information that was stolen from Scripps, but Scripps could be facing a serious fine for failure to adequately protect their patient information. So what lessons can be learned by other large institutions about cybersecurity from this hack? Other organizations that haven't been hacked by ransomware, for example, they shouldn't relax because they are targets. The bad guys are out there looking for targets like scripts. So the lesson is you you can't relax, but we know from experience, we've seen it over and over again, the risk is higher than you think. And you need to devote more resources and more thought to protecting the sensitive information because it's all valuable and, and you're a target. I've been speaking with Mark Heckman, a computer science professor and cybersecurity expert at the University of San Diego. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
UC San Diego Health calls it the end of an era. Their vaccine superstation at Remac Arena, which began as the county's first large vaccination site at Petco Park, gave its final shot on Tuesday. The volume of people needing or wanting vaccinations has plummeted, and officials say this kind of large vaccination site is just not needed anymore. As other big vax venues run by Sharp and Scripps Health prepare to close this month, the emphasis turns to mobile units, pharmacies, and more ordinary medical settings to distribute vaccinations. Joining me is San Diego Union Tribune medical reporter Paul Sisson. And Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me. There was a time not that long ago that people would stay up at night on the computer trying to get an appointment at UC San Diego's vaccination superstation. So is this shrinking vaccination pool a sign of success? Certainly, in a way, you know, we're we're getting very close to 2 million people who have had at least one dose. Uh, and that I, I don't see how you could see that as anything uh, but a victory. Uh, however, we're just not quite there yet in terms of what they estimate to be the number we need to really break through to, to herd immunity, this idea that it's hard for uh, an infection to spread very far in a community of people. Uh, they say we need to get to about 2.1 million people in San Diego County to reach that state, uh, and we're, we're still over 100,000 shy. And what about the vaccine superstations run by Sharp and Scripps Health? Have they also experienced a fall off in people wanting shots? Oh, they definitely have. Uh, I talked to Scott Evans, the CEO of Sharp Grossmont Hospital in La Mesa uh, late last week. And he said, you know, we were seeing thousands of appointments coming in every day, and, and now we're, we're seeing hundreds. Uh, and definitely the volume is much, much less than it was. Uh, but they are remaining open. Uh, they're kind of seeing exactly how they are going to make this transition during the month of June. It looks like they'll probably hold off for the next few weeks and kind of see how things change before they transition to nearby clinics or pharmacies that they run within their system. Um, Scripps is running the Del Mar uh, fairground site. I, I guess their uh, agreement to use uh, facilities down there for a drive-in uh, vaccination operation run through June 30th. So they would have been transitioning away at that point. Anyway, it's it's not quite clear exactly how they will, uh, you know, transfer new appointments. It, it seems like a lot of our health systems are really quite focused on trying to deliver as many vaccines as possible within the normal uh, confines of, of doctor's offices and, and that type of uh, venue where, where you have patients speaking to, to their doctor and their doctor might say, hey, I noticed you haven't been vaccinated yet. Can we take care of that for you while you're here today with us, maybe for some other reason, like a routine checkup or for a specific healthcare problem? So which groups of San Diegans are lagging behind in getting vaccinated and what kind of efforts are being made to boost those numbers? Uh, you know, we've seen very good vaccination uptick uh, in the south, the southern part of the county. Uh, we, we've seen a little slower uptake uh, out east and, and maybe even uh, to some degree along uh, the coast, uh, perhaps up in North County. Uh, you know, not, not a massive lag behind, but maybe just slightly less uptake. Uh, you know, there, there still are quite a few fears out there uh, about various rumors. Uh, you know, we saw the San Diego Padres uh, players indicate uh, over a week ago uh, that they were concerned about fertility issues. Kaiser polls are indicating that, that more than half of Americans believe at least 
one uh, piece of inaccurate information about vaccines. So, the, you know, there's still a lot of talk about whether or not this vaccine has been fully tested well enough, even though we've, we've had over 150 million Americans already receiving at least one dose. And what about the vaccination lottery announced by Governor Newsom last week, where you can win up to $1.5 million if you've had one shot? Could that possibly cause a surge in vaccinations? That's what we're all wondering. Uh, you know, it really seems like it might. Uh, you know, oftentimes people get wrapped up in in uh, this type of thing. I mean, if you think back to large Powerball jackpots, you, you do see lots of folks uh, coming out at the last minute to buy their lottery tickets. Uh, so I think logic kind of makes you feel, gosh, that could happen here. Uh, they will be doing the drawings for uh, 10 $1.5 million winners on June 15th, uh, the very day that the state's reopening blueprint system goes away. Uh, so all, all of these healthcare planners are definitely wondering, you know, are we going to see a large number of folks come out at the last minute and roll up their sleeves and, and get their first dose so they're eligible for that drawing? You know, it seems like we will still have a fair amount of supercenter capacity available on June 15th and before. Uh, certainly, uh, Sharp and Scripps are, are both indicating that they will still have some uh, superstation capacity up and running. So there should be enough to absorb a pretty big surge, but, but I think it's it's a little up in the air in terms of exactly what's going to happen, how many folks are going to get motivated. I, uh, I looked at the state numbers yesterday, and uh, it's a little unclear whether the state numbers lag quite a ways behind reality, but it, we certainly didn't have a huge number coming forward over the weekend, at least in the uh, the numbers that were posted by the state. Uh, but that certainly could change after Memorial Day weekend, uh, when you could think that perhaps a lot of the vaccination stations were probably not booking up with appointments because people were out celebrating. Now, people talk about the vaccination rate plateauing. Is the daily number of new cases also plateauing, or does that continue to fall in San Diego? You know, we've seen a pretty steady rate. We we dropped below 100 cases per day for a while and then kind of came back up over 100 again. But then uh, now for the last three days in a row, we've been significantly under 100 new cases a day. Uh, so that it does feel like we're settling into a very low, low level of COVID activity in our local community, and we're certainly seeing that nationwide as well. I guess there's really no reason why we should be any different than the nation as a whole, which uh, in most places is seeing uh, very, very low uh, levels of activity. Paul, if someone listening has decided, yes, I want to get vaccinated, where would you suggest is the best and most seamless option for them right now? You know, if you have uh, access to the internet, which most people do, I suppose, uh, you can just go on the uh, MyTurn website that the state runs and it will show you all the different places you can get vaccinated. Uh, and then you don't really even need to make an appointment. In most cases, you can just wander on in and get one. Uh, a lot of local pharmacies, CVS, for example, uh, offer walk-up vaccination. So, uh, you know, it's pretty much everywhere at this point, uh, you know, people are going to be falling over themselves to put a shot on your arm at this point. So it uh, shouldn't be much trouble at all. Okay. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune medical reporter Paul Sisson. Paul, thank you. Thank you. Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, host of the Parker Edison Project on KPBS. 
cool thing about joining KPBS is you make one simple donation, and that money ripples into supporting everything else you see and hear on KPBS, including podcasts like this one you're listening to right now, making a place for fresh voices and perspectives to be heard. And that's music to my ears. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click that blue Give Now button, and donate what you can. All right? Thanks. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. California health regulators have long been faulted for doing too little to ensure the state's 88,000 elderly and disabled people in nursing homes receive proper care. Now an idea is being floated that critics say would gut nursing home oversight, having state inspectors act as advisors. KPBS's Amitha Sharma has more. I'm still dealing with the effect from what happened at this place. Rob Halliburton landed at Palomar Vista Nursing Home in Escondido last spring, needing care for a foot wound. The 57-year-old says it turned out to be the worst place for him. I almost got my foot amputated because they wasn't taking care of my wound and my treatment. And Halliburton says his experience was just one example of poor treatment at the facility. I witnessed everything from the wound care, to not being changed, to being treated unfairly, being not listened to. Witness so many things that would make you cry, literally make you cry. Felicia Barbato is a nursing home inspector for the California Department of Public Health. Barbato told state legislators last year that stories of inadequate care are commonplace. I have been well aware of the poor infection control practices and quality of care in many of our nursing homes prior to the pandemic. The high rates of death in these facilities during the pandemic unfortunately comes as no surprise. Despite all of this, CDPH is now mulling a post-pandemic remodel of its oversight system being pushed by the nursing home industry. The agency's draft plan would require inspectors to visit nursing homes a few times each month to advise staff on how to reverse substandard care. Carl Steinberg, medical director of Life Care Center of Vista and Carlsbad by the Sea Care Center, says the idea would be a dramatic improvement over the current inspection system. It's very much, you know, gotcha. I found, oh, you know, the temperature of the breakfast was two degrees below what it should have been or those kinds of things. Steinberg says his support of the new approach has nothing to do with his other role as chief medical officer of Mariner Healthcare. The group is being sued by the state for understaffing its Northern California nursing homes, falsifying its ratings to boost profits, and failing to report any of the numerous sexual assaults at its facilities. Steinberg says his advocacy for revamping the state inspection system began long before the lawsuit. I do think a little bit more sort of humanity and collaboration would potentially go a long way. CDPH declined an interview, but in an email said the principle was to establish a more frequent presence in nursing homes. The email goes on to say that if the new method is implemented, CDPH will still carry out its, quote, distinct regulatory enforcement role. Advocates for nursing home residents call this an impossible promise. What are they giving up? And I think the obvious answer is they'd be giving up 
enforcement. They'd be giving up complaint investigation. Tony Chikatel is a staff lawyer for California Advocates for Nursing Home Reform. He says it already takes CDPH an average of 636 days to investigate complaints against the facilities statewide. Chikatel contends that having the agency's inspectors take on consulting roles would also pose a giant conflict of interest. Equivalent of it would be if you got pulled over by a police officer for speeding and the police officer jumped in the car with you and said, okay, let's drive around and you show me your skills and I'll critique you. Advocates say inspectors have told them they are against the idea. A lawyer for the CDPH Inspectors Union did not return phone calls. Meanwhile, Rob Halliburton says his foot still hasn't recovered. A CDPH investigation into his claims concluded Palomar Vista failed to provide him with proper wound care. It's why he's opposed to a change that would reduce CDPH's watchdog role. I think that would be the worst thing ever. Period. Because we need them to be our police. That's what they should be, our police. Almost like when you call 911, the police show up and take care of you. Amitha Sharma, KPBS News. In a statement, Palomar Vista said it couldn't discuss Halliburton's claims, but added it earnestly disagrees with the suggestion that anyone in the facility was ignored or mistreated and said its staff is well-trained in wound care. Today, we continue our spotlight on the Social Justice Reporting Project, a multi-part series by the San Diego Union-Tribune. The report we focus on now deals with the issue of colorism, the preferential treatment of people with lighter skin by others of the same or different race, and the prejudicial treatment of people with darker skin by those of the same or different race. Joining us now is the author of the report, Savannah Cadet Hayes. Savannah, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me on today. You decided to take on colorism for this social justice project. What moved you to take on this topic? What moved me to take on this topic is my own experiences firsthand, um, experiencing colorism growing up and still actually experiencing it now that I'm getting older. Growing up, it was so common in my community, as I talk about it a lot in my story, in high school is when I really started to notice um, the peak of colorism. In what ways did that play out in your life? Growing up, I was very lighter skin complexioned. I had curly hair. In high school, I was also like on the cheer team. So that gave me a lot of opportunities or it seemed that way that a lot of people favored me over someone else that was not of the same skin complexion that was a little darker or didn't have curlier hair or just kind of had different textured hair. So that's when I really started to notice that being lighter skin was in my favor compared to other skin complexions. So where does colorism come from? What's its root? I think colorism takes back all the way back to slavery. Um, When you're learning about it in history, you learn that a lot of the white masters raped Black women and the Black women would eventually have biracial children. So biracial children would work in the house or work as like a housemaid while other children that were darker skin complexion or just black worked outside in the fields. So that kind of carried on into our society now, which is why lighter skinned people are treated fairly different compared to darker skinned people. Tell me about the people you spoke with and how colorism plays out in their lives. The people that I spoke with, I actually had the opportunity to grow up with a lot of them, Um, whether that be in schools. I did pageants with a lot of the girls that I interviewed. And I kind of just 
been able to see them grow entirely. And some of the women that I have um, highlighted, I also or have also started their own businesses or are becoming journalists themselves. So I have a variety of women that I was able to speak to, but one that I can specifically touch base on is um, in the videos, you can see that I interviewed a lady named Gianni Pettis Wilson, and she briefly discussed how being Black has affected her in her pageantry. And by doing this, for a lot of the years, society viewed white women as the best competitors as opposed to Black women. And since she was a Black woman competing in pageants, she felt that she had to act a certain way or her hair had to look a certain way or her makeup had to be a little bit lighter so that she could fit in and potentially have a chance at winning. Um, That's a woman that I was able to touch base with about colorism as well. And, you know, colorism is as old as, as slavery and colonialism, as you mentioned. How has it been experienced differently through the years, you think? Now this is more in work atmospheres, school atmospheres, people's personal life, such as dating and marriage. I touched base on that, too, in my article, how I see that it's more complicated for women that are darker skin to be fairly treated differently or look differently compared to someone like myself who is lighter skinned. A lot of the women now um, that are lighter skin are often fetishized or black women are fetishized as well as more like being checked off a list um, when it comes to dating. A lot of men are often stereotyping black women. So I, I personally feel like now it's past slavery, but it's moving towards a different direction in someone's relationship life. You know, when people see and hear this, what do you hope uh, they walk away with? I hope they walk away with a sense of feeling like they have to do something about this, like they have to educate themselves on the topic. A lot of people don't know what colorism is, and they often think it's just something that gets brushed off. And in reality, it affects a lot of people like myself, who is biracial. It affects our everyday lives. We get passed up a lot on opportunities. We are often dismissed. We don't get treated the same. And that is a problem for a lot of people. And not being treated the same or not having the same opportunities as one skin color obviously is a type of racism, which people don't assume that colorism is racism. But this is, as I mentioned, not the typical racism. And let's talk about that a little bit more. Do you feel that colorism is an issue that isn't often explored or interrogated in the way that it should be? Definitely. I think colorism is passed up completely. When you think about racism, you think about someone who is saying that Black people are less than a skin color, right? But you don't think about colorism as, oh, you're lighter skin. So it's just, you are darker skin. So I just don't prefer you. It's such a complicated topic when you think about it. But colorism, for me, it's different just because the way that I've grown up, I never knew where I belonged. I was either too white to be a part of my black family or was too black to be a part of my Mexican and Hispanic culture. So not feeling where you belong is very confusing growing up. And I feel that that is also can lead towards identity crisis. I've been speaking with Savannah Cadet Haynes, and we've been discussing her article, Not the Typical Racism, 
as part of the Union Tribune's Social Justice Reporting Project. Savannah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. The pandemic has been on the top of our minds for over a year now, with sickness and surges and vaccines taking up most of our attention. But there have been other things going on, other changes in the works, sometimes big changes that have flown beneath the radar. One of them has to do with recycling in San Diego. The city is in the process of rolling out a whole extra layer of waste pickup, Organic or food waste will have to be separated and placed in new green bins. It's a state mandate. It will cost the city a bundle, and it will start in January. Joining me is Ken Prue, City of San Diego's Recycling Program Manager. Ken, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, what exactly what types of waste will need to be recycled when this new law goes into effect? When the new requirements from SB 1383 take effect in January 2022, Basically, all generators, so whether it's single-family residents, multifamily residents, or businesses or other uh, commercial entities, basically will have to recycle all of their blue bin materials, which is largely the case now. But specifically, they will all have to recycle organic materials, and it includes materials such as yard trimmings and untreated uh, wood waste, as well as food scraps and food-soiled paper and uh, other, other similar items. And why is the state mandating this additional waste recycling? It's to divert organic materials from landfills, and it's it's largely because those materials generate significant about amounts of methane as they decompose in a landfill setting. And so it, it's diverting that material, one, to reduce the emissions, but also to create valuable and needed Uh, materials or products that can help benefit the soil and just the overall environment. And in our region, how do you expect this change will affect capacity at San Diego's landfills? Well, it'll definitely help because it, it, in diverting materials from the landfill, it really extends the capacity of the landfill. So uh, that, that, that will help. And it will also help us in reaching our zero waste plan and climate action plan goals. Now, the city will compost the waste at Miramar Greenery. Will the capacity of the greenery need to be increased? We we have capacity and we'll be doing some modifications to our facility. The main material that we will receive in, in this setting will be from the, the waste that we collect from the, the city service residences. And uh, there will also be other privately operated facilities, both existing and also new facilities coming online that will process a lot of the material from businesses and condo complexes and and, uh, entities like that. One of the hurdles in complying with this new state law is that most single family residences don't have a green bin currently. So how are they going to get one? Well, that, that's something we're going through the planning stages now, but the, the state law, the new, new law requires that all generators will have to have containers. So for those homes that are serviced by the city of San Diego, we will have to provide those uh, green containers and as well as uh, collecting that material. And, and actually it will need to be collected weekly. So uh, currently about two thirds of the homes have service, many of which provide their own old style trash can to use for their yard trimmings. So we'll actually 
have to convert the program to weekly. We'll have to get the, the automated carts, the green carts. And then we will also actually have to add the, the food scrap materials to the program. So then they'll be able to put their, their yard trimmings, their wood waste, and their food scraps all in one bin, and that'll get serviced weekly. This is a tremendous increase in resources that the city is going to have to dedicate to recycling. Tell us more about that. What what are you going to have to add? For the city service residents, we will have to be doing a, a lot of procurement, both of the existing containers as well as uh, purchasing a number of additional collection trucks. We also have to hire a significant number of staff, and we also have to upgrade facilities, both for the, the fueling system for the uh, compressed natural gas uh, to fill the trucks, but also things like locker rooms and you know, just some of the basic I- infrastructure, kind of the behind the scenes stuff. And, and then we also have to do a substantial effort, both for the city service customers, as well as across the board, a lot of education and outreach, and also coordination and regulation of our franchise haulers that, that service the multifamily complexes and businesses. And there's a lot of reporting requirements. It's, it's a huge, huge undertaking and a huge, huge uh, responsibility, or even you could consider it a burden placed on, on the jurisdictions. How much is this going to cost the city? It's uh, it's uh, it's going to be significant, and it's something that we're still undergoing the planning phases. So I, I don't have a, a dollar amount off off the tip of my tongue. The city, I believe, spends about thirty four million dollars on trash service now. So what are we talking? Millions more? Well, the the thirty four million dollars or so that is just for the the black bin collection, the refuse collection. Then there's also money currently spent on the the recycling collection. So for the blue bins and the yard trimmings collections, and, and then there'll be a significant add with having to purchase all of these automated containers and a number of uh, new collection packer trucks and, and the staff. And it's definitely uh, in the millions of dollars uh, that, that will be uh, required to meet these uh, requirements. With this huge additional cost for waste recycling and waste pickup in the city, could this be the final straw that may end free garbage pickup for single-family homes in San Diego? This is that would be referring to the People's Ordinance of 1919, and that that's something that would require a, a vote, and so that's something that could not be just decided at at the staff or at the at the city level per se of, of say the city council. It, it's something that currently with with implementing these requirements. The uh, they're becoming a general fund cost, and so that's definitely these new funding considerations are something that are not taken lightly. So people will now be asked to put food waste with their yard waste in these new green bins. What kind of outreach does the city plan to do this? Because the city is so large, it, it will be a phased expansion. And so what we'll be doing is we'll be reaching out to residents as the service will be expanded into their area. And they'll be mailing. We'll also be doing outreach on social media and, and various platforms, basically to let them know the service is coming and to help them understand uh, what the new requirements will be and uh, basically how to participate and, and really you know, present it in a way that it, it'll be easy to do and something people can easily get used to. What One thing that we will offer is uh, what's, what's known as a kitchen pail. And basically it would be a, a pail that you... Uh, could put your food scraps in and use it to store the food scraps in your kitchen, say under your sink or even in your freezer. 
then take that out to your collection container before you put it out at the curb. And so it's something where it'll make it convenient and also it'll have nice graphics on it to help people understand the types of materials they can put in the container. Yeah, we really want to convey to people to, that it's as easy as possible to, to do and get used to. Now, state law requires that this becomes effective January 1st, and there are large fines for not complying by then. Is the city in danger of facing those fines? The the city takes the implementation of these new requirements very seriously, and we're working very closely with CalRecycle, the agency that, that regulates us on, this, on these matters, and explaining to them uh, where we're at with our implementation. And we're, we're doing everything that we can to, to implement in time. Uh, we know that we will not be able to have everything 100% rolled out by January 1 of 2022. And it's, it's in part uh, with the timing of the administrative regulations, the implementation regulations for this law, only getting finalized uh, in uh, last December, early January. So originally they intended to have about three years of planning for jurisdictions and with COVID and, and everything else, it, it took longer. So we really have uh, a very short lead time. And so, so say we had just under a year really to roll it out, but at the same time, collection trucks take generally about 18 months to get. So we basically are explaining where we're at and and showing that we're doing everything we we physically are able to and taking it seriously. And uh, CalRecycle has been very receptive and responsive to our our, our situation and, and what we're what we're doing. I've been speaking with Ken Prue. He's the city of San Diego's recycling program manager. Ken, thank you. Thank you so much. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Summertime means a little more relaxing, maybe a road trip or two, or just some backyard hangouts, which could put you on the hunt for a new soundtrack. We have some new music releases from San Diego area bands for you to discover, ranging from rap to punk to robots. Joining me is KPBS Arts Editor Julia Dixon-Evans to walk us through five new local tracks. And welcome, Julia. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. Well, let's do first up here some hip hop. 1019 and the Number Men are out with a new EP, Spokes. Tell us about this one. Yeah, 1019 is a project by San Diego-based rapper Jay Smith. And this EP came out earlier this year. For such a short album, it's really impressive and jam-packed. My favorite track is Dog Days, which is a grooving, synthy song. And that expression, Dog Days, kind of has a double meaning. It's a summery idleness, but also some darker themes like anxiety and depression. And this song really encapsulates both meanings well. There's a certain heaviness and exhaustion in the lyrics, but it's such a complicated, brainy heaviness, kind of poetic. And the overall sonic effect is so hypnotic. Dog days, Lazy days of heat, make meals in the morning, stealing deals as I eat. Ride my own ticket, some riding over beef. Wonder with the word, think before I speak. That's Dog Days by 1019 and the Number Man from the new EP, Spokes. Accidents 
is a punk band from Mexicali, and they have a new album, En Vivo. Who's behind Accidents? Yeah, this is a solo project of Cesar Cosillo, known as Carr from previous projects. And I really love the approachable brand of pop punk here. There's a little alternative, a little emo, maybe. And I love La Persona a la que conociste, which was actually released as a B-side on another project last fall. I'm glad it got a little more attention in this album. The track title translates to The Person You Met. And this is a song that's kind of about how difficult it is to love someone who's struggling, at least from the perspective of the person who's struggling. It's the idea of being sorry for not staying the person you were when you first met. It's heartbreaking, but there's a little bit of hope in there, and it's super catchy. That's Mexicali-based Accidents with La Persona a la que conociste from their new album En Vivo. Local favorites The Varigols are out with new music and have an in-person concert scheduled this month. Tell us about the single and the show. I know, it's exciting. And their brand new single is called Palm Springs. And it's jaded and summery and wistful, kind of everything you'd expect from a song about Palm Springs. But Jenna Cotton's vocals add kind of an unexpected layer of mystery and a sharper edge to it. I feel like there's a mixture of nostalgia and a weird dread as we approach what people are calling the post-vax summer. And the song hits that nail on the head for me. You can catch them live June 17th at The Holding Company in OB. They're playing with Jesus Gonzalez and Future Sexual. That's Palm Springs by the Varigolds. Tijuana-based Mauro Rosa is out with a new single, In Equidad. says In Equidad is a beguiling, sinister track and it's kind of heartbreaking but still really chill. 
I love the texture here. It's Latin-inspired mallet percussion, plenty of fuzzy electronics and synth layers. And Mauro Rosa's vocals are breathy, they're dark, a little distorted, and a little sweet at times, too. This one is her fifth single since last April's Entra, so I'm hopeful that's a sign of a forthcoming full-length album from her, a follow-up to her EP that came out in 2018 called Cama en la Sala. That's Tijuana's Mara Rosa with Inequidad. And now for some robots. Satanic Puppeteer Orchestra, great name, has a new album and a robot lead singer? Right, so Satanic Puppeteer Orchestra, they're actually not satanic at all. It's a project of local Mike Buckmiller, aka The Professor, and his robot, SPO20, who is actually the front person and singer. Buckmiller writes the lyrics and then he uses this really old text-to-speech software to create SPO20's voice. So the melodies and the cadence, it's all created by this text-to-speech. And that software went out of business in 1997, so it's definitely a unique and retro sound. And once he has the lyrics, Buckmiller will build the rest of the composition around those vocals. Their latest album is called Race to Space, and it follows in the footsteps of all their other themed recent albums. There was one that was a grocery shopping themed one from a few years back, and this one's all about outer space. I personally love the track Weightless. There's a lot of space nerdery here, but also a little bit of existentialism and some pretty amazing insight into the human condition, all thanks to a robot. Slim fast and that pins work okay. Pito there's an easier way. The problem isn't what you eat. Blame the planet under your feet. Still way too much on the Martian base. You'll weigh even less in the vacuum of space. Sure your clothes will still be tight. But technical E is the best kind of right. That's Weightless from Satanic Puppeteer Orchestra. You can find links to stream or buy all of these tracks, plus a Spotify playlist at kpbs.org. And I've been speaking with KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon Evans. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. You will weightless when you're weightless. You will weightless when you're weightless. You will.